This is the time that we read scripture, and uh, today it's Luke 23, 8 through 25. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found him in no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Good morning. Thank you for those who smile at me and for those who frown. Please turn it upside down. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and as we enter a text that is difficult for some of us to internalize because it is the pain and suffering that you're going through physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, we pray, God, that you would give us strength to not focus on the suffering and the torment, but on your grace and the extension of that grace to us, that love for us that you would die for our sins so that we may have a relationship with holy God. Pray, Lord, that you would reveal your word to us, that you would minister to us in a really dynamic way. Your Holy Spirit flow freely amongst the hearts and minds here. We ask God for change. We don't ask you for more knowledge and conviction only. But with that knowledge and with that conviction, we desire our lives to be changed. So, Lord, may you transform us. May we not walk out of the sanctuary this morning the same, but may your sacrifice for us change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we left off at Pilate sending Jesus to Herod when he found out that Jesus was a Galilean, and we found out that Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, so Pilate was actually really glad to hear this. And he did this because he knew that Jesus was innocent, and he didn't want to deal with this uh, mob who wanted to kill Jesus and sentence him to death, and he couldn't see the justification for that. I mean, there was no charge. There was no guilty verdict. And so he was also looking out for himself and how this was going to be an opportunity for him to mend the fences that he kind of destroyed with Herod. And so they just weren't friends at the time. And so this is where we continue with Luke's gospel. And if you're new To our church here, this is what we do. We just kind of go systematically through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. 
And so maybe some of you are wondering, how come we're not doing some Advent type of thing or some Christmas type of thing? That's just not how we roll. So this is where we're at. And uh, Luke chapter 23, celebrating Easter during Christmas. Here we go. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now a little bit of background on Herod. This is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, who was a... A Roman authority for much of this region where Jesus conducted ministry. So Herod heard about Jesus' miracles and his teaching and his following and and his influence within all of these districts that he was over. And this Herod is the same Herod that you're going to find in Luke chapter 9. So if you can just flip over several pages, Luke chapter 9 starting in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And since Luke chapter 9, verse 9, Herod desired to see Jesus. So when we read, he had long desired to see him, Back in verse 8, chapter 23, this is not an exaggeration. He's been wanting this since Luke 9.9. And Herod wanted to see Jesus for quite a while now. And Herod also pops up again in Luke chapter 13 when the Pharisees tell Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. And that's in Luke 13, verses 31 and 32. Some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Herod wanted to meet the man who called him a fox, because he thought he was pretty hot. He was like, why are you calling me a fox? And the man of miracles that was performing all these grand miracles, he wanted this guy, Jesus, to perform one in front of him, to show him what he's got. And so we continue that in verse 9, back to chapter 23. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now the word questioned here in in our text in verse 9 is more than what our English word indicates. The, The Greek word means to accost, to accost one with inquiry. And so this is an interrogation And Herod is demanding answers. And so it's not this friendly dialogue where I ask you a question, you respond, let's do it over a cup of tea. And, you know, this is Herod accosting Jesus with questions, but Jesus didn't answer. Why? Because there were no cell phones back then. So it's very difficult to answer. Jesus knew his motives. Right? Jesus knew Herod's motives. They had nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing for him to figure out you know, where he was with God. Herod was simply intrigued by Jesus' miracles. And so he wants to see this. He's intrigued by Jesus' influence. How can someone with no money and no power influence so many people? And so this guy is just more interested in like leadership development and figuring out influence and how to win friends and influence people and that sort of stuff. And his ability to affect so many around him without a military, without the best education. And so Herod was interested in the man of God, but he wasn't interested in God himself. Now, you know what speaks most loudly in this section of Scriptures? 
the loudest thing that I hear is Jesus' silence. That's the loudest thing I hear. Because you notice that in all of these verses, in this entire text, Jesus is completely silent. Jesus doesn't say a peep in these verses. It's not until verse 28 does Luke record Jesus saying anything. John's gospel is a little bit different. In John's biography of Jesus, he wrote that Pilate and Jesus had a conversation in John chapter 19. But the way that Luke wrote it, he purposely wrote this story of Herod and the silence of Jesus. And you look at these chain of events by Herod. Verse 8, Herod was glad to see Jesus and desired long to see Jesus, hoping to see a sign from him. Verse 9, Herod accosted Jesus at length. Verse 11, Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt, mocked him, dressed him up, and then sent him back to Pilate. Jesus doesn't say anything. Now, why did Herod do that to Jesus? Part of it, I think, is to show that he was in power, that he had authority. Part of it was to try to embarrass Jesus. But a lot of it was just simply because Jesus wasn't going to play his game. He just wasn't going to answer the 20-question game. And Herod didn't want to know God. Jesus knew that. He wanted to see what Jesus could do. He wanted to see a miracle. But he had no interest in knowing God. And when Jesus wouldn't answer Herod's question, he had some pride. He was offended. And he didn't do any miracles. Then this real Herod came out. How often do we try to manipulate God? We're we're kind of the same way, aren't we? Because how many times do we approach God with a million questions? Or we want to see the supernatural. God, if you do this, then, you know, then I'll do this. Or I have all these questions, and you just have all these questions for God, but what's behind your motive? What's behind your heart? Why are you asking all of those questions? And is your heart humble before the Lord as you're asking these things? Because do you think that the Lord of the universe answers to you? Because Herod sure does. And maybe he doesn't answer you because he wants to see the real you appear. Are you really long-suffering? Are you really patient? Are you really under self-control? Do you really have joy? And to weed that real stuff out so you can deal with that stuff. And then when the truth is revealed about yourself, you can actually work on that. Now, whether you are really humble to receive from God or or that you throw a tantrum, you have a choice to make whether you are going to be long-suffering and seeking the Lord or you're going to throw a tantrum like Herod did. And God is before all of us. God is before you. He has revealed himself through the Word of God, through the person of Jesus, through creation. Through love. And maybe you, like Herod, bombarded God with questions and requests and treated God with contempt and you've mocked him saying, like, see, God doesn't answer my questions. It's just full of malarkey or whatever. And you start making fun of him and mocking him and making sacrilegious things about him, drawings or whatever, and because he didn't do exactly what you wanted him to do. So you treat him like a clown and then you tell him to go away. Now, there was a time when Herod was not this antagonistic towards God. You and I were born a sinner, but you were also born to know God. And Herod at one point had desired to know God. You look back to Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. Let me read that for us. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You hear that? So at one point, Herod heard the word of God from John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and it challenged him. It convicted him. It perplexed him greatly. And he heard him gladly, but it didn't change him. It didn't transform him. Herod was a sexually immoral person. Herod took his half-brother's wife, Herodias, he took her as his own, and he got rid of his other wife so that he could be with her. And he just lived like nothing happened, and for everyone to just accept his sexual immorality and just kind of move on like nothing happened in life. But then John called him out. John the Baptist called him out. Herod liked John the Baptist's preaching. He liked his teaching. He even protected him from his now wife. Continuing on, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. So you see how Herod's character didn't change. The lust that he had in his heart was the same. And he liked John's preaching. It greatly perplexed him, but it didn't change him. Back into Mark's text. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, why couldn't Herod change? There are a couple of factors. One of them is pride. He couldn't break an oath in front of his friends, in front of his military commanders, even though he did break an oath to his wife. But he can't do it in front of his buddies. The second reason is he is continually feed his appetite for his sexual immorality. He knows he struggles with this sexual immorality, and yet he throws a party like that? Because if you struggle with alcohol, you don't go to a bar. And so if you struggle with lust, you don't throw yourself a party with people who will feed into your lust. That makes no sense. And so this was what really hardened his heart towards God because at one point he heard John gladly. He was convicted by what John had to say. And the next moment, he treated God with contempt. He mocked him. He treated him like a clown and he said, go away. And the hardness of heart towards God can happen to any of us because all of us probably have some seed of pride in our heart. And also because some of us like to feed our sinful appetites. You struggle with sexual immorality, but you keep on going back to that internet site. You keep on going back to those chat rooms. You keep on going back to whatever it is that is feeding that appetite. And you are fooling yourself because you cannot handle those things. 
So Herod had a sexual immorality problem. And I'm sure he had other problems as well. But this one stands out. And this is the one that got him into a really dark spiritual place. And it was so dark that he couldn't recognize who Jesus was, even though he heard in, from John the Baptist the gospel and who Jesus was. And that John was preaching repentance. Now, this area of sexual sin was just one symptom of his unwillingness to address the sin in his life. And there was a time where he gladly heard, but not in Luke chapter 23. His heart continued to harden. It it, it moved from where he was gladly hearing John the Baptist to where he's treating God with contempt. He's mocking God. Now, for us, we need to hear the word of God. We need to rid of our pride. We need to address our sinful appetites. Otherwise, we may face God's silence, like Herod did. God's silence towards us because we don't have the heart to listen anyway. So why answer you? Your heart's not there. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Many of us know 16, but we kind of forget it at that and forget 17 through 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. There has been no one who has desired to trust in Jesus who didn't receive him. Not one. There's no one in the family of God who didn't want to be there against their will. There's not one. May our hearts remain soft towards Jesus, and if you are glad to hear the word of God, I encourage you to go past conviction. I encourage you to go past knowledge, that you allow the word of God to transform you, putting aside your pride, putting aside your sinful appetites that pull you away from God and distance you from God. And don't wait. Don't wait because you're not here by accident. You're not hearing this on this day by accident. You need to deal with your sin today. Otherwise, who knows if your heart will harden. Take control of your character today. Otherwise, you might find yourself hardened each time you compromise your character, each time you hear something and nothing changes within you, and you're compromising. Now back to Luke chapter 23 in verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. You catch that? These guys didn't like each other before, now they're buddies. Now, Pilate's mission was accomplished in terms of mending those fences with Herod, but he had to deal with this unjust case with Jesus since Herod sent him back to him. And now Pilate has to make this decision. Verses 13 through 21. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. 
Now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. This is an added text in some biblical manuscripts. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Pilate was confronted by this mob while he was governing over the Roman province of Judea, and he was responsible for keeping things under his jurisdiction, under control, and to address any type of civil disobedience that would rise up from his jurisdiction. Now, the Romans highly valued the justice system. Some of the things that we've taken from the Roman justice system is stuff that we still implement to this day, that we've taken from the Roman judicial system. So Pilate, being the prefect, being the judge of this jurisdiction, he knew how to evaluate justice. He values justice. And what was happening to Jesus was clearly unjust. And so he tried to free Jesus. He told the mob, you know, Jesus is innocent. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And there is no guilty charge. There is no charge. And Pilate knew that, and they just get louder to cover up that there's no legitimate charge, and he can't bring himself to do the right thing because these guys are so worked up by now that if they rebel, Pilate is in deep trouble because Rome expects him to keep them in order. So what does he do? This is something that he's probably never faced. As a judge, he's probably faced crowds who have wanted a guilty verdict for a guilty man, and they wanted justice. He's probably faced crowds who wanted justice for an innocent man, to set free an innocent man who was accused of a crime he did not commit. He probably even faced crowds who wanted mercy for a guilty man. But he probably never faced a crowd that demanded death for an innocent man. Right? This is total injustice. There is no crime. There is no charge, yet the crowd demanded the death of Jesus. And Pilate knew he was innocent. You look back to verses 14 through 15. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Jesus is innocent. Innocent before Pilate. He's innocent before Herod. But look at how Pilate starts down this slippery slope of compromise in verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. What? Did you catch that? He's innocent. So punish. What for? He's innocent. He's innocent before Pilate. He's innocent before Herod. Why? Why? Pilate threw that out there in an attempt to appease this mob when he should have just thrown out the case. He's innocent. That's it. There's nothing to do. But he throws out, I'll punish him. I'll punish him. All right? And so he cracked open this door of compromise. He just let a little bit of injustice come in. And the mob forced that door open in verses 17 through 19. Now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. And like I said, some manuscripts add this verse in Luke's Gospel, but we do find reference to this practice in Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. 
where it reads, Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Pilate initially thought this would be a way to release Jesus. Right? Okay, the appeasement didn't work. Let's try this thing. You know, at the festival, I'm allowed to release somebody. I want to release Jesus. Now you go back to Luke chapter 23, verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. God is not happy when we compromise on justice. Or you go to Micah 6, 8, where we are told to do justly, to walk humbly before our God. We are a justice-driven church. We are not a social gospel We don't believe that justice is the end all of those things. We believe Jesus is the answer. But I think it greatly offends God when we do not stand up for justice, even a bit. Now you take a closer look at verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. He really wanted to let Jesus go. He really wanted to release him. But he's under so much pressure to do what this mob is wanting him to do, even though he knows what is right and what is just. I mean, Pilate's wife even speaks to him about this, right? Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. She said, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Then Pilate attempts a third time to reason with them about justice. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. That's not justice. He's compromising. And so you see Pilate sliding down that slippery slope of injustice. And Jesus is innocent. And Pilate is essentially trying to appease these guys. He's trying to reach a plea bargain. He's trying to settle on a plea. He's saying, I know he's not guilty of capital punishment. You guys want him dead. Let's meet somewhere in the middle. I know I can't set him free because you guys would be really upset. How about if we just beat him? We'll beat him as much as we can to the point of death, but we won't kill him. How about that? Okay? Let's reach a settlement here. What happened to what Pilate said in verse 14? I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And so now he's caved in, and now he's feeling the pressure, and now he's saying, I have found him no guilt-deserving death. See how he tweaks that a little bit? Oh, he's not guilty at all. And then now he's like, oh, sliding down that injustice slope. I find him not guilty of anything of death. We can beat him. Let's just beat him, and we'll let him go. And so Pilate really wanted to settle in this case, and and, and he tries to, to get them to accept a lesser punishment, even though an unjust punishment, because what they were asking for was just, it was so outrageous. It was so unjust. This is an innocent man, and you guys want to kill him? And so Pilate tries to settle, telling them that he'll do something close. It's still outrageous, but it's not that outrageous. Because the punishment spoken of here is of flogging and of scourging. This is not just a ruler on your hand. And you remember that Jesus was already beat up by some prison guards earlier before, right? 
they covered his face and they would say, prophesy, tell me who hit you. He was already beaten up once before. And so this punishment is not just less than that one. And that one was pretty brutal. Because have you guys ever been blindsided by a hit before? You, you can't brace for it. You can't tense up for it. You can't get ready for it. You just take it full on. It's really different than when you're ready for a hit. And so he endured all of that. And then now they're talking about flogging and scourging. And this is brutal. This was a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip. And embedded in that whip were pieces of bone, pieces of metal. And the, the metal would bruise you get the blood to the surface, and then the bone was jagged and they'd stick in you and they rip it off. It'd rip your flesh off. This is what they're talking about. It's not just a belt. These lashes, after they ripped open the flesh, the blood would be pouring out because the bruising would cause the blood to come up to the surface. And so scourging alone would sometimes kill their prisoners before they even go to get crucified. That the scourging alone would be enough and so here's Pilate who thought you know won't that appease you I mean there's even a risk for him dying after we beat him look come on that's enough right we don't have to actually put him to death we don't have to kill him but then even that's not enough but they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted man not guilty, not guilty of death, okay. And you know why this is? Is because the mob knew that they had Pilate in verse 16. Right? He was already compromising, so if they just pushed a little bit more, he would completely cave in. You know, if we just push a little bit more, and, in, and instead of standing for justice and righteousness, he compromised his character. Now, how many of us are like this? Just a little bit. I'm just going to do it a little bit you crack open the door and it's more and it's more and you start sliding down that slope and that's it i'm just going to compromise a little bit verse 25 he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered jesus over to their will now this is historical this is not mythology this is not folklore this is not just story because even if you don't believe the Bible to be the Word of God, this is recorded by historians outside of the Bible. This is history. But in the Bible, it was prophesied in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why must Jesus suffer and die? Why does this have to happen? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That is why. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ died for our sins. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us. Because unrighteous people are separated from God and only the righteous, Jesus, only Jesus can bring us to God. That's why. And if you want a picture of Jesus literally doing this for someone, you look no further than Barabbas. Look at the picture of Barabbas. An unrighteous murderer. 
an insurrectionist who was sentenced to death, who was sentenced to die, but Jesus, the righteous, innocent, took his place, substituted. And it's really important when reading this narrative not to take your eyes off Jesus, because sometimes we can focus on too much on Barabbas and too much on Pilate or too much on Herod, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because it's only Jesus, in Jesus, that you and I are gifted salvation. And in His Word, it's unfolding before our eyes. When the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God, as First Peter said. Now this has application to our lives to where we may feel convicted. And we may look at Pilate and compare his compromise to ours. But don't lose the bigger picture of Jesus. We're not striving for conviction. We're not striving for knowledge. We're not striving for a history lesson here. We are striving for change. Can you pause a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to change you? Stop accumulating the stuff in your head and stop feeling convicted in your heart and ask God to change you. Because does the fact that Jesus suffered and died for you, an unrighteous sinner bringing you to God, does that change anything for you? Does it? Or is that like, oh, that's good. I log that in here. Or I'm convicted, but does it change anything? He didn't die for crimes that he committed. He died for the sins that you committed. He died for you. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The murderer Barabbas was released, and the will of the innocent surrendered. You ever wonder if Barabbas knew what Jesus did for him? Because he was on the way to that cross. He had a death sentence. That cross was his. And it originally had his name on it. It was reserved for him. And the relief that he must have felt when the prison guard came and unlocked the gate and said, hey, you're free. He must have been like, what? He knew he was going to die. There's no way around this. And I wonder if, if, if he was there on the hill when they nailed Jesus to the cross. Like, how did this happen? I, I need to see, like, what happened. And this is all conjecture. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I don't know. Because one thing he could have done is he could have just ran far away. I'm free. They might change their mind. I'm gone. I'm not going anywhere close to that. They are not seeing me ever again. But maybe he chose the other route. And maybe he heard, somebody's taken my place? Pilate set me free because they're going to hang some guy named Jesus? i got to see this. And maybe he went to Golgotha to see the guy that took his place. And maybe he got there and he thought, that's supposed to be me. I actually deserve it. I killed people. Jesus is innocent. He was probably asking people in the crowd, hey, what's the charge? Like, why is he there? And they would say, like, we don't like him. Yeah, but what did he do? We just don't like him. He died in my place. I was supposed to be there. Jesus did that for you. That's your place. The cross is my place. We are guilty. And I don't know if that happened to Barabbas, but essentially we all have that choice whether to run far away from God, to acknowledge like, yeah, we're set free, but eh, I'm out of here. 
I don't want to deal with that. I'm just glad I'm free. Or we have a decision that we can go to the foot of the cross and acknowledge Jesus who died for us, who took judgment from us. And to look at the Savior who died in my place, who took my place. And when we believe that by faith, that Jesus sacrificed himself, a holy God-man sacrificed himself for us, and we trust that his righteousness covers our unrighteousness, he brings us before God, and we are graciously received by God. You and I are guilty. We are guilty. All of you have sinned. There's none of us here that is sinless. The wages of sin is death. That is justice. Some of you are thinking, that's not just. Just because I lie, just because I steal, just because I lust, that's just. That is just before a holy God. It's not just before you and I because we're sinners. So when we're sinners, oh yeah, that's good enough. That doesn't equate to that. But when you're before a holy God, when there is perfection, there's nothing wrong, a teeny bit of offense, of transgression, you are guilty. This is a holy God. And so Jesus died in your place. He took your place. But will you receive His gift of life and live in freedom? Or are you going to run away from Him, rejecting Him, rejecting His gift of life? Because this is essentially what Herod did. He treated Him like a clown and said, Go away. Go away. Go back to Pilate. And yet He died on the cross for you. You are Barabbas in the flesh. And your story is being played out right now. Are you going to come to the foot of the cross and acknowledge Jesus as your Savior? Or are you going to run? Run away from God. The jailer has come to set you free. And you are free. And because Jesus took your penalty of death, are you going to run? Are you going to come to the foot of the cross? He paid for your penalty. He paid for your debt. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, how do you know if you've been converted? How do you know that? Well, you need to ask yourself this question. How do you view the cross? This is how you know. Because if you view the cross as foolishness, If you just view it as, oh, that was just something that happened. Or, you know, Jesus was just showing us how to be selfless. He didn't die for sins. You know you're not saved. You know you are not converted. If your mind ventures into those places, you remain unchanged and you are not saved. If the story of the cross is just a silly story, a folklore, make-believe, mythology, then you have not been transformed and you have not been saved. That's as easy as how you would know if you're converted or not. And if this is you, you're not here by accident, you need to repent. You need to repent. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and submit your life to Jesus. If you believe in your heart and have faith like a child that Jesus, the innocent, the righteous, died for the guilty, the unrighteous, on the cross, and that is fact. That Jesus is your only hope while you live and when you die. Then you're converted then you are a believer in Jesus. If you have any other hope other than Jesus, that's a false idol. Then I question whether you are converted. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me in John chapter 14, verse 6. Why in the world would Jesus have to die for our sins if there is any other hope? If all ways lead to salvation, why? I do believe all ways lead to God. Some of you that's heresy. It's not. We're all going to face the judgment. Are we not? Whether you're a believer or not, you're going to be before God. It's just what happens after that. Are you going to be there for the everlasting or not? Jesus would not have to die if we were righteous ourselves. If there were many ways to God, why? Why would he have to do that? His death is not a picture of selflessness or what other uh, liberal kind of interpreters say why Jesus died. It's because he's showing us what humanity is really about. And being selfless and being... Yes, He is those things, but that's not what it's about. It was to save us from eternal separation from God. That's why. God who is love and God who is holy and just. Love cannot exist without justice. Impossible. And love cannot exist without the standard of holiness and righteousness. Because then what do you compare it to? You have to have that as a standard. Why did Jesus die on the cross for us? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Know this. Why did Jesus have to die? This is why. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Why did He have to die? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did He have to die? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's all about Jesus and the cross. Accept Jesus and what He did for you in faith, and you will receive salvation. Reject Jesus as your Savior, and you will be separated from God. You will meet Him, but then after that you will be separated forever. That's hell. Some of you guys have a misconception about what hell is. Oh, the gnashing of teeth and, and you know, the uh, devil with a pitchfork and a pointy tail and horns and you, ha, 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 pointing at you with a pitchfork. That's not hell. Biologically, you are not there anymore. It's not like you have cells. Cells decompose. You are not there biologically anymore. Hell is eternal separation from God. That's hell. And some of you are thinking, oh, what's the big deal? You know what love is? You won't. You know what joy is? You won't. You won't know any of those things that God is. You know what justice is? You won't. And it's not like a mind of nothingness because you have a reference for those things, but you will never experience those things. You know what they are because you're alive now, and you know what those things are. Right? An eight-year-old knows what justice is. You know what justice is. You will know that you are guilty. You will know that what has happened is just. You will know that you cannot experience love ever again. You will experience that you can never have an embrace from a loved one again. That's hell. Let's pray. If you want to accept Jesus this morning, 
I invite you to pray this in your heart. Jesus, I admit I am a sinner, that I am unrighteous before your holiness. But through you, Jesus, I am made righteous, and I will no longer be separated from God. Thank you for taking my place, for paying my debt, for dying in my place and forgiving me. I want you in my life as my Lord and as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.